Well, good morning, church. It is good to be gathered with you on this Lord's Day and uh, on this Father's Day. So let me uh, repeat our greeting and our blessing to you fathers. Happy Father's Day to you. It is good for us to honor fathers. Uh, The scriptures have commanded us, um, it's commanded all children, to honor their fathers. In the Decalogue, in Exodus 20, in Deuteronomy 5, and that's repeated again in Ephesians 6. And so uh, it is good for the Christian church to honor uh, mothers and fathers today being Father's Day. Um, Although fatherhood is not easy, but it is good, it is noble, and it is full of God-exalting characteristics. Really, everything that um, we should praise and pursue in Christian fatherhood is really in in a celebration and an exaltation of God. Because everything good about fatherhood that we know is because of God, who is our good and perfect heavenly Father. And yet, I know also that as we celebrate Father's Day, that it is possible, maybe probable, that there are some who find Father's Day not easy. Uh, Maybe you have lost your father uh, through death, or maybe some have never known their father. Uh, Perhaps even more tragically, there might be some who wish they had never known their father. We live in a complicated, mixed-up, sin-cursed world. But with all that it's still we, we understand from the scriptures what God intends for us to know and enjoy in fatherhood. And uh, that's where we can find our, direct, our attention focused upon God and his perfect fathering of us all in that, heavenly, in that heavenly spiritual way. We have a perfect father, a heavenly father, someone who is described as good and perfect. Think of this, all wise and all knowing. Dads, have you ever made a decision and you thought, man, I hope that was the right decision? God's never done that. God's never done that. Every decision he's made as a father has been the right one. And I hope our hearts can rest in the good father that we have in God this morning. So I'm going to lead us in prayer together. I'm going to lead us in a prayer focused on uh, a praise and a a prayer for Christian fatherhood here at Highlands. And I'd invite you to please silently join me as I lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, What a privilege it is to call you that. It is miraculous that we, uh, sinful people on our own, that you would redeem us and bring us back into right relationship with you, that we might call you Father, that we are your sons and daughters. Lord, we praise you as the one who has done this. Thank you for the gift of Christian fatherhood you've blessed Highlands Baptist Church with. For every dad here who desires to grow in their grace and knowledge of Jesus and who wants to see their family grow in the same way, we pray that you would encourage each dad here today, each dad in this church family to keep trusting you, that wherever they feel guilt or insufficient as a father, that they would be comforted and assured of your perfect heavenly fatherhood in their lives and in their family's life. And that in Christ, We are forgiven and strengthened for faith-filled obedience in what you've called us to. Lord, I pray that you would draw each dad here to a fresh desire and commitment to find their greatest joy and sense of identity and satisfaction in their relationship with you. They would um, exercise their their responsibility and role of fathers from that Um, endless well of joy and grace and compassion and love and mercy that you have poured out on us. I pray that the children of this church family would learn more and more the joy and blessing of obeying the instruction of their fathers and 
that they would find the joy and the blessing of obeying your command to honor their fathers. And Lord, for any here who are grieving on this Father's Day, for whatever reason, pray that they may cast their cares and their sorrows on you, knowing that your abiding presence and comfort would encourage them, that you are a God who does care for us, that you do show compassion upon us. Pray that we would all know firsthand in fresh ways that you truly do care and that you are the Father of the fatherless. Lord, thank you that we can know you as our Father. May we enjoy this day living in a conscious awareness of this spiritual reality. In the name of Christ we pray this. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and find your way to the book of Acts in your New Testament. If a Bible is not familiar to you, in the New Testament starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the first book after the Gospel of John is the book of Acts. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest, I hope that you found your heart encouraged already by what we have sung and how we have worshipped together, these truths that we've been kind of proclaiming to each other uh, in song. Uh, we hope that you find your hearts encouraged here as we look into God's Word together as well. Uh, this morning, my aim is to introduce us to the book of Acts because we will begin an expository sermon series in this book. And so uh, we're going to uh, spend some time Um, What I hope to do is to whet our appetite for the goodness of God for us in the book of Acts. And uh, so to start with that, uh, what I'd like to do is not assume that we've all read it. And so uh, we'll be looking at a couple of passages here, looking at some of the major themes and ideas, and uh, concluding with um, kind of a a warning or a preparation for for how this book is going to challenge us. And I pray, by God's grace, that we'll grow together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus in new and exciting ways as a church family. Um, I assume many of us have read through this book of our Bible, Acts, um, at some point in our life. Uh, Maybe you haven't. Uh, But whether you have or haven't, I'd like to invite the entire church family to read through the book of Acts this week. Um, It'll take you about two to two and a half hours to read through it silently. I know that sounds like a long time, right? Some of you are chuckling to yourself. Like, where does this guy think we're going to find two, two and a half hours to sit down and read the Bible? Well, um, be creative. Um, I would ask that we do this. Um, it's an exciting book. It has some exciting truth from God to see how he uh, works in the world. And think about some of the things you might be willing to sit down and do for two and a half hours. Uh, maybe watch a movie or watch a few episodes of a streaming show or scroll through some social media or... Um, work on a craft or whatever. I'm asking if you would just think, oh yeah, this week I want to sit down and read through Acts. Um, And if reading through something like that is kind of daunting, um, there are ways to, free ways to actually listen to it. There's people that have read through it and recorded their voices and you can listen to it maybe on the car ride to work or uh, doing some errands. Uh, Whatever the creative way that you'd like to do, I'd like to encourage us um, to read through Acts uh, this week. Uh, The book of Acts has 28 chapters. It's organized into that way. And really, chapters 1 through 12 is kind of roughly the first half of the book, and it focuses mostly on Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, how Christ's church was obedient to the commission of Jesus in that general area. And then chapters 13 to 28, the second half, roughly the second half, follow the ministry of Paul on his three missionary journeys through the areas that we now call Turkey and Greece and Italy. Scholars place 
the authorship of uh, or the writing of Acts somewhere around the mid to early 60s of the first century. So if you're wondering kind of when this was written, this was written in a, in a time when there would have been eyewitnesses of some of the things of, of the accounts of the Gospels um, of what Luke had written in, in Luke. Um, and we believe that Luke wrote Acts. In fact, if you look in uh, chapter 1 of Acts and... Uh, um, as it begins there, I'm going to read the beginning of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and, and then I'll read the beginning of here of Acts, and I think you'll see the, the parallels and the similarities there. Both of these are written to someone named Theophilus. Luke begins this way in the Gospel of Luke. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then if you notice here in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so we understand that Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. In Luke, the Gospel of Luke, what Luke was doing, I hope I'm not saying the word Luke too much, right? He was presenting the account of Jesus, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. In Acts, Luke provides an account of what happened next in the story, what happened next in, in history. Jesus ascent to heaven, how the apostles led the church through its earliest days and its initial growth through those areas of the world and how the core message of Christianity spread far and wide. What is the core message of Acts? Well, in Acts we learn what that core message is because Acts provides some of the earliest accounts and statements about Jesus. It is historical. It is a historical, factual book about what has happened. And according to one count, Acts has 42 testimonies to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. So they keep coming back to the story of Jesus. There are 10 sermons. If you define a sermon as at least several sentences that have been recorded that would give us at least a summary of someone preaching. Peter preaches five sermons. Paul preaches four. Stephen preaches one sermon. And in addition to these sermons, we find that there are about 30 preaching summaries, again, going back to this message that was being proclaimed about Jesus. And there's two commissions given by Jesus, uh, one here in chapter 1, um, often uh, many of you are familiar with it, verse 8. And then another one that's recorded in chapter 9 that was given specifically to Paul, an apostle. Now we can also learn about the core message of Christianity, not just through those sermons and through those proclamations, but we can also learn about Christianity by reading the descriptions of those who were the opponents of Christianity. And there were a lot of them in the book of Acts. The Jews believed that Christians were preaching against the temple, against the Old Testament law, against their ancient religious customs, against everything they had known about how they were relating to God. The Greek philosophers, they opposed Christianity because they thought the Christian message was just something that dealt with more foreign gods. And the Greeks would have been pluralistic in their worshiping of gods, numerous gods, and oh, this is just another one of those gods. You have working class Greeks that are recorded in Acts chapter 19 who were very alarmed at Christianity being a threat to them, because they said, and I'm quoting here from Acts 19, they said, there is danger, not only that this trade of ours, these were silversmiths who were making idols out of, out of silver for the worship of, of these false gods. They were concerned that this trade of theirs may come into disrepute. And also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing 
and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So you start to learn about the core message of Christianity, even in the response of those who opposed Christianity. And what we find in Acts is that the core message of Christianity preached by these earliest Christians was all about Jesus. Really, it's hard to go through a chapter in Acts where you're not finding yourself confronted again with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus commissioned his followers to do. If you look in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we get the idea of witness, right? Somebody who can testify about what they've seen and learned and heard and and what they're a witness of. And this is what they were to do. So they were to be witnesses of Jesus. What about Jesus, though? His life, his death, and his resurrection are the three main features that we see described in Acts. But interestingly enough, Acts doesn't really teach us a lot about the life of Jesus. It talks about Jesus a lot, yes but not so much about his life. It really doesn't give a lot of biographical details about Jesus. Um, Those sermons that that are recorded in in Luke, maybe, maybe they were assuming that the people that they were preaching to, at least in the beginning, knew those details because they had... They were eyewitnesses. They were contemporaries of the day and they were familiar with, with Jesus and his life and, and what he had done. Or maybe Luke, here writing Acts, assumed that his readers of this book would have already read or would be reading through his gospel that he, that he wrote that was full of those biographical details. For whatever reason, Acts doesn't really present a lot of those details about Jesus. Interestingly enough, and this is kind of unusual for how we would understand a story about somebody, is a main emphasis about Jesus in Acts is about his death. Now think about it. Very few biographies that you would pick up to read would give you very little about the person's life and then a whole lot about his death, right? I mean, that would probably not be a biography or a book that you would say, hey, you've got to read this. It talks about their death a lot. But Acts is like that. Acts focuses, the people that are talking about Jesus are often talking about the end of Jesus' story his death. They keep referring to his death and its significance. Now, everybody dies, right? So what's the big news flash here that somebody died? Why is this such a big deal? Well, as big as as an important of an emphasis in Acts that the death of Jesus was or is, there was something that was even greater, and that is Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection is really takes the undisputed center of the early Christians' message about Jesus. The resurrection of Christ is really what they were focusing upon. They were focusing upon his death by what it accomplished and what it did, but all that was driving to this um, discussion about he has risen. You say, well, again and again and again, the people in Acts preached of how Jesus didn't just die, but he was raised from the dead. This is how Luke summarized it in chapter 4. He says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony, their witnesses, right, testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That's what they were driving towards in their, in their teaching and their preaching. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, Be witnesses of what? They witnessed his resurrection. In chapter 1, the disciples were looking to replace Judas, and if you look at chapter 1, verse 22, They were looking for someone who could, quote, be a witness with us of his resurrection. So they keep coming back to this primary central theme of the resurrection. You say, well, well, why does all that matter, okay? Well, the resurrection is central to the message of Christianity, as we see in Acts, 
Because Jesus' resurrection from the dead proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that He was the Son of God, that He is Messiah, the Christ, the Promised One. Now, Peter argued for this in Jerusalem in his preaching in Pentecost in chapter 2, and as Peter and Paul were teaching, they treated the resurrection of Jesus as a given. It doesn't seem like they were trying to prove to their audience that Jesus rose from the dead. I find this fascinating about the book of Acts. Now, imagine if you had someone, if you had seen someone rise from the dead, all right? Someone you had seen buried, had mourned, had grieved, now was living and walking around and talking to people and sharing meals with people and interacting with people, having conversations. I mean, that would be just mind-blowing, right? But it's interesting, in Acts, as they travel through and proclaim the message of Christianity, of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, you don't really find a lot of arguments for the resurrection, as if their audience was skeptical and doubting that the resurrection had occurred. What you find is that they really weren't arguing for the resurrection in Acts as much as the, the preaching and teaching was arguing from it. I don't know if you understand the difference there. The fact that Jesus rose from the grave was not treated as a matter of dispute in Acts, really. Rather, it seems to have been assumed that everyone in Jerusalem, at least, knew the resurrection had happened and word, had, word was spreading then into the surrounding areas. Many people saw Jesus crucified and then saw him live again after his death. Paul, now the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, says that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. That's just one indication of what happened there. And that means that if someone did not personally see Jesus in his resurrected, you know, as, a, as a resurrected Messiah they would have known people who did see Jesus that way. It was something you couldn't get, get, get around. And by the way, um, as Christians, right, we live in a, in, a, in a world that is increasingly more and more pagan in the sense of being godless and secular. This is one of the stronger arguments for the resurrection, that these early Christians seemed to assume that non-believers knew that Jesus had risen from the grave, that word had spread, that there were eyewitness accounts, that it wasn't something that they had to convince somebody of because so many people had seen him and had spread the message of that. And they say, well, why is this message uh, that we see in Acts of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, so what? Why is it significant? Well, the, the resurrection of Jesus makes up the core message of, of the, the message in Acts. It's because it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was, in fact, God's sent one, the Messiah. Now, we might disconnect from that a little bit because we don't usually use the term Messiah often in our understanding of we use the term Jesus Christ, but, some, but if you think that's not his last name, we understand that, right? It's a title. Jesus Christ is Jesus the Messiah, the sent one. And what that means is, is that the Messiah was the one who would come to bring in the kingdom of God. According to the scriptures, the Messiah was the one who would bring the rule and reign of God with him. That was repeated in Acts 8, in Acts 19, in Acts 20, in Acts 28. I mean, it, it carries on throughout this entire book. Jesus is the Messiah. God sent one. And friends, that's good news. That is good news. That's the kind of news that is described in Acts, kind of turns the world upside down. That the Messiah, God sent one who was going to bring God's kingdom with him and bring you into God's kingdom is Jesus. And that's why people who believe Jesus was the resurrected Messiah were called Christians. It says in Acts 11 that they were called Christians first in Antioch. 
And again, we just think of Christians as like a religious label. But in its day, it really had a connection to the term of Messiah. These are Messiahs. These are people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's sent one, who is bringing God's rule and reign with him. And so at the heart of the disciples' message in Acts then was the answer to this millenniums-old question. This question had been asked for thousands of years. As you read through the Old Testament, who is the Messiah? Who is going to bring us into relationship with God? Who is going to mediate between us and God? And all through those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and and it adds up into thousands of years, there was this longing and this looking for Messiah. What we find then is that they have seen him, they have met him, and he's risen again. And the message that they were spreading then was of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Jesus is the one that will bring us to God. And that's what the Christians loudly and boldly and courageously declared. Jesus is Messiah. He is the hope for the world. He is your hope to know God. He is your hope to have your sins forgiven. And the only hope that anyone has of knowing God and enjoying him forever. But Acts also shows us that to experience Jesus as Savior doesn't mean you just intellectually understand that. But as Peter told his listeners in Acts 11, he said, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this idea of believe maybe has lost some of its relevance in our modern age, but it really means this idea of embracing in your heart, this embracement, this, this accepting, this faith in Jesus as the one who can bring you into right relationship with God. And this call to believe in Jesus uh, was followed up many times or um, in, the, in, in Acts in the stories with the sign of a, uh, a visible sign that, that showed the act of faith in the heart had happened, and that was baptism. And you see that it was a call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to call on his name, and then to express that, that step of faith in the heart with the physical act of obedience, physically, of baptism, of identifying with Christ publicly. And by the way, this call to believe in Jesus is so contrary to every other world religion, that the, right? Because every other world religion will have the deity, but it wasn't just believe in the deity. It was believe in the deity and then do, what, do this process or this path or follow this progress to achieve and to merit or to earn a status then to be accepted or to, or to ascend in this next plane or whatever the religion might, might offer. But Christianity, the Christians' early call and their proclamation of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, to believe and accept Jesus as the Messiah was markedly different from every other preacher of world religion in that day because Christianity and believing in Jesus is not just religious moralism. It's not religious moralism. Acts shows us that Christianity is not a version of religious moralism. It is a life change through faith in Jesus who has done the work for you. He has brought you into right relationship with God through his life, death, and resurrection, not through yours. Now, if you don't know Jesus like that, I would encourage you to keep coming on Sunday mornings and look into Acts because it would be our earnest desire for you to experience and to know Jesus as your Savior like we see so many others in the book of Acts come to know and embrace Jesus as their Savior exciting stories that are recorded in Acts of how God changes the life through, the, through 
um, Jesus being Messiah and bringing you into right relationship with God. It's been said like this. I, I, I couldn't improve on just the simple statement of how to summarize Acts in a, in a sentence. Think of it this way. Really, the central message of Jesus in Acts about Jesus as Savior is this. Either your sins will be wiped out by Jesus or you will be wiped out by your sins. That's what they were proclaiming. That's what they were telling everyone. Either your sins, either your sins will be wiped out by Jesus let me tell you about him as Messiah, him as resurrected, the one who's bringing God's kingdom with him, or your sins will wipe you out. There is salvation in no one else. You say, okay, I get the idea of Jesus and the centrality here in the book of Acts, how everybody with the messengers were talking about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. But it goes beyond just that. We're not just reading about characters that did something in the past and we're kind of like, you know, clap our hands and say, good for them, but we're living modern lives in a modern context, so far removed from what happened here. I mean, this was like recorded in A.D. 60. I mean, like, come on, it's like 2023 now. We've kind of moved past that. What is there for us in this book for our modern-day context? Well, that's what occupies a lot of space in Acts. There are accounts of how the message of Jesus was taken to all kinds of people everywhere. And so what you find in Acts is this, the mission of the church. The mission of the church. I don't know how you would answer a question like that if I were to hand out little sheets of paper and say, write down on a sheet of paper, what is the mission of the church? I wonder what you'd write down. Here's the good news. We don't have to create it or invent it. It's been given to us and it's recorded for us here in Acts. Again, the church being the testifying to Jesus and proclaiming the message of Jesus as Messiah and salvation in no other name as they, as they obey the commission of Jesus what you find, like in chapter 6, the church encountered in, in, in some massive controversy, internal strife within the church in, 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 in chapter 6 about favoritism from one group against another. And then we're told in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that they worked through that controversy and what happened is the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And this theme of growth continues. This theme of advancement of the gospel continues. In Acts 9, you see it says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The mission of the church. You move forward again into Acts 12, there the message of Jesus just keeps spreading where it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 12, 24. These little summary statements that, that Luke keeps coming back to is telling us why he's recorded these stories. It's not just, you know, to kind of make us go, oh, cool, but it's to show that the mission that Jesus commissioned his witnesses to do, they were obediently carrying out and God was giving them success in that. There's many passages like that in Acts. So, what about us? Say, well, good for them. What about us? Well, my prayer is that we will all find hope and courage and faith to depend on God to advance and spread the message of Jesus where we work, live, and play. And not just say, well, that happened in Acts. Good for them. Now, there are some things that are unique in Acts, right? And that's one of the challenges of teaching and preaching Acts, really, of understanding it, is you kind of scratch your head and go, well, is that something that God has... God expects to happen every time, in every place, the same way? 
Or is that just describing what had happened? Or is it prescribing what we should do? Do you understand that? There's some challenge in that. But here's the universal truth we can understand, is that God intends the message of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. He is the one in whom we hope. He is Messiah. That that is the message that the church is busy about spreading, about sharing. Well, how does that message spread then, right? How do they do it in their day and how will we go about it in our day? What program did they have? What ministry did they, did they use to do it? Right? I mean, what kind of website did they have? How did they use social media? What kind of mailers did they, did they use? Right? We kind of chuckle, right? Here's what's interesting. In Acts, the answers to how they did this are so simple. And because of that, profoundly encouraging. Here's what we find in Acts. God uses ordinary people to spread the message of Jesus. He does that. He, he uses ordinary people, and they do some spectacular things. Now, again, you could say, well, the apostles weren't really ordinary. Well, fundamentally, they were. They were just people. Now, they had been commissioned and, by God for a particular role as apostles, and that is unique to that phase in the, Christian, in the, in the church history, to be sure. But we're going to learn about signs and wonders that took place, miracles that took place in the early church. And what we'll see is that those signs and wonders, those miracles... Were, were, were used by God to validate and authenticate the message that they were spreading. It wasn't that we were supposed to all like, okay, now we're going we're gonna to go ahead and stick our hands into snake dens and let them be bitten so we can say, ha, shake it off and go, look at me, I'm, I'm a Christian, right? And there's a story where Paul gets bitten by a snake and nothing happens to him. No, the point was that, that God was validating the message that they were preaching. The message of what? Jesus. Jesus. And so these miracles showed also the ongoing presence of Jesus in the mission of the church. I mean, um, next week, as we, as we, Lord willing, as we get into really the kind of section-by-section section exposition and exegesis of this book, uh, I think the plan is for us to have a longer scripture reading from Luke, the end of Luke, to lead us into then what's happening in Acts. But can you just imagine how discouraged those Christians must have been after when Jesus was arrested and then crucified, right? I mean, I'll probably say this again, but, you know, um, I mean, well, I mean, just try to, can you imagine that? I mean, Jesus, right? And then he's dead, right? So you get together with other people who had been following Jesus while he's in the grave, and what are you going to say to cheer, cheer each other up? What are you going to say? Right? I mean, just the gloom that they must have felt. Just baffled, right? But what happens is he rises from the grave and then God uses ordinary people to then spread the message about Jesus and authenticates that message through these signs and wonders. But those signs and wonders, right? Um, I mean, it would be pretty cool to, to, to have some of these miracles happen. We're going to read stuff like somebody just touches uh, um, the clothing and they're healed, Right? I mean, sign me up for that, right? I mean, wouldn't that be great? It's almost like a living video game, right? The little health packs, and you kind of just whoop, look up a health pack, and you're like, man, I feel great. It's almost, I mean, it would be really cool. And we can kind of get pulled into the sensationalism of that. But what's, what those signs and miracles actually stand in the shadow of something is was the message that they were spreading, the message of Jesus, that verbal proclamation. How did, this, how did the church fulfill its mission? By talking about Jesus by sharing the good news of Christ. 
not just saying, hey, I want you to understand some facts about Jesus. Do you agree and accept? Great, you're a Christian. But no, there was this vitality, this organic reality in their soul that Jesus had changed them. That they are now, they, they understand that they, they have a relationship with God through Jesus and it's, it's remarkable. It's this new covenant way. And they wanted to tell other people about it. The hope that it gave them the purpose in life that it gave them, the meaning in life that they found in knowing God through Jesus, the fulfillment and satisfaction that could only be found in knowing and following Jesus. And that verbal proclamation is how they spread the news of Jesus. But the verbal proclamation of the message of Jesus in Acts wasn't alone. It wasn't like Peter and Paul were just kind of walking around with sandwich board, you know, posters, you know, Jesus and Messiah, repent, or believe and repent and be saved, and they just kind of walked around and just kind of did that. No, it was, it was in Acts, we're going to see that there was this link, this connection between the message they proclaimed and the life they lived. Their verbal proclamation was accompanied by this important feature of the Christians who were spreading the message of Jesus. They were doing it also while living attractive and godly lives. And now, we might debate about the word attractive, right? Because some people will think Christians don't live attractive at all. Many people think Christians live lives that are offensive. I get that. I understand what you mean. But over and over again in Acts, the message about Jesus is accompanied by comments and descriptions and notations about the Christians who were proclaiming that message, living lives that were attractive. How so? Like this, caring for one another and serving one another in sacrificial ways. I mean, ways that are so radical, it's going to make us kind of scratch our heads and squirm. We're going to feel like, boy, this almost sounds, I mean, sometimes we might even read some passages and think, man, that kind of almost sounds like socialism. And it's not, by the way, okay? It's not, so it's okay. But these first Christians were known for things that were unique in this sense. In Acts chapter 2, you probably see it there in your Bible or flip a couple screens up, but in chapter 2, verse 46, it describes that these were people who were known for these things. Regular fellowship of breaking bread together, living and sharing everything in common, giving to one another as each had need, and eating with glad and generous hearts. Verse 46. I mean, there's this, these people are glad to be together. They are eager to be together and share life with one another. In fact, Luke records in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, that by living this kind of life, he summarized it this way, that they enjoyed favor with all the people. It's remarkable. So the centrality of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the spread and advance of this message are central themes in this book. And there's a couple others, and I'm going to just mention one of them, and we'll go back, we'll, we'll, we'll tease this out as we go through it, is the theme of suffering and how Christians respond to suffering in their life. It is, it is so non-American. But one of the other main features, and I'm, I'm gonna, this will be the last main theme that we talk about this morning, is, is the feature, the theme of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Now, I bring this up here in our overview, in our summary, just to hopefully whet our appetites, because it acts as like two massive counterweights for our understanding of the book of Acts. Jesus has commissioned his, his followers, that's us too, to be witnesses of his life, death, and his resurrection, to spread the news that he is Messiah. He is the only hope for the world. That's hard to do, right? That's hard. Um, I mean, is it really all up to us? 
Acts is going to show that in a very important sense, it is not left up to us alone. In other words, we're going to see in Acts that God will accomplish his mission through us, yes. But he is in no way dependent on us. That's good news, church. That is great news. It doesn't mean that the success of God's mission for taking the message of Jesus all over the world doesn't require faithful Christian obedience, Christian messengers. It does. And we must do that. But Acts over and over and over again is going to show us that God is the one at work behind it all. That's good news. How do, how do we see that in Acts? Well, here's just, again, what, what our appetite. Luke records in Acts some heavenly jailbreaks. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, you all like maybe to watch a movie about, you know, somebody trying to break out of jail, kind of cool and neat and, you know, Mission Impossible stuff, right? Well, I mean, this is stuff that Acts is written better scripts on. I mean, Luke records heavenly jailbreaks. There are several occasions where angels were sent, okay? Not, not secret agents. Well, maybe the angels were secret agents. But angels were sent to break these people out of prison, to release them. And they do it in spectacular ways. I mean, twice Peter is in prison, and both times an angel released him much to the consternation of the, of the officials of the day, right? The city officials. Paul found himself in jail in Philippi. And Paul was released from that prison in Philippi after there was an earthquake that shook the doors and re- opened the doors and released his chains. And as a result, the Philippian jailer there comes to faith in Christ in his household and a church is established there in Philippi. Heavenly jailbreaks is one way we see the sovereignty of God. Another way that we see the sovereignty of God in, in church family, this is so encouraging, is how we see the, God's effectual call. You've got these people spreading the news of Jesus, ordinary people talking about Jesus, sharing the good news of his life, his death, his resurrection. And in and through it all, it's not that we have to evaluate and say, well, how did they persuasively do it? What kind of logic did they use? What kind of strategy did they employ in their speeches? And there certainly was skill in all of that, for sure. But friends, here's what's such good news, is that Acts shows us God's sovereignty by how it describes people coming to faith. This is great news. Nowhere in Acts does any of the messengers talk somebody into being a Christian. It doesn't happen. Nobody's talked into it, kind of logically argued into it. It never happens. There's always a work of God that takes place. And I know we understand this. We believe this. This is in our, in our church statement of faith about God's work in, in, in being Lord of salvation. But think about it. Jesus commissioned for us to go to all the world. I mean, does that overwhelm you? I mean, right? Go to all the world. That's Acts. Maybe we'd, walk out, we'd all walk out of these doors with this massive burden on our shoulders. I mean, it would be like, can I, can I pass anybody on the street without stopping and saying, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? But Jesus commissioned for us to go, right? There are so many unreached people group. There are so many unbelievers, not just around the world, but even in our own neighborhoods, our own cities, right? And as we listen to and embrace God's word and acts, we might think, or we might be tempted to be like doubting, thinking, what difference can we really make? I mean, what difference can Highlands Baptist Church, right, make in a world of billions and billions of people? Here's where we find encouragement. As we listen and embrace God's word to us in Acts, we will see that God speaks and acts with power as his church fulfills their mission. God is sovereign and working behind it all. We're going to see that God is the one who calls people to repentance. 
We are the messengers of the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. But God is the one who acts with power in that message. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says it this way about Peter. Peter said to them, here he is proclaiming the message, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke records this. For the pro- he, he carries on. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, right? Spread it to all the world. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter proclaimed the message of Christ with a confidence that God was calling sinners to himself through that message. That's good news, church. That's good news. Who is going to call on the name of the Lord? Well, according to Acts 2, everyone whom the Lord our God will call. You say, well, does that mean I don't need to call on people to repent and believe? No, Acts says we've got to do it. But as we do it, we can be fully assured that God is at work in that. Or here, Acts 11, verse 18. God is sovereign. He is the one who grants repentance. In Acts 11:18, it says, And they glorified God, saying this, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They marveled at the spiritual work that God had done as they spread the message of Jesus. God is sovereign. He's the one who appoints people for eternal life. Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. They heard the message of Christ, right? They're, wit- they're being witnesses of Jesus. When they heard this, the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. None of these preachers could take credit for anyone who came to faith in Christ on their own. Like, those are my disciples, my converts. No. They were faithfully proclaiming the message and God worked with power. He acted with power in that proclamation. God is sovereign. He's the one who opens the heart to faith. In Acts 14, we're told that they arrived and they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them. They're reporting in. They're they're giving a, a testimony of what God had done. And what did they share? In Acts 14, 27, it says, and they shared how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God's the one that opened the door. He's the one that opens hearts to the gospel. Acts 16. We talked about this when we were doing our study in Philippians. That there was a woman named Lydia who was there, who was a businesswoman. She was selling her, 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 her textiles, purple goods. And she, it says this in Acts 16:14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, I, I went through all that list just to give us encouragement and to challenge us, maybe in our own thoughts, Maybe that bothers you or confuses you to, to see how Luke continually comes back and summarizes and points us as readers, God, God, God's at work. He's acting with power. Sometimes the sovereignty of God can be perceived as something that discourages faithful evangelism. In Acts, it's the opposite. The sovereignty of God, this firm belief in God's sovereignty is exactly what encourages the Christians in Acts to engage in faith-filled evangelism. For example, in Corinth, Paul was really discouraged. Does that surprise you? Right? An apostle, really discouraged. It seems like he was ready to just stop preaching because God visits him and gives him this message. In Acts 18, it's recorded this way, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. So Paul clearly was afraid. Does that give you courage and comfort? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, which makes us think that Paul is thinking, I'm going to be quiet. I'm stopping this. 
God says, no. Why? God says, for I am with you. Acts 18, 9 through 10. I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I, this is God's words, for I have many in this city who are my people. It's amazing. And at that time, there weren't many people who had embraced the message of Jesus in Corinth. I mean, that's why Paul was so discouraged and was ready to be silent and, and be done. And he was afraid. And God gives him this encouragement. And he says, I'm with you. I'm sovereign. I act in power. There are many people in the city that will be saved. Church family, shouldn't we believe the same about our cities? Shouldn't we believe the same about where the, the areas where we work, live, and play? And so in conclusion, I want to maybe... I want to prepare us for some of the ways that I think, that I believe Acts is going to challenge us, where I have been challenged already, even in just preparing to start to get into Acts. I came across some examples of these themes in Acts and how it's going to press against our, in some ways, not every way, but in some ways, our modern American thinking about the church and about the mission of the church and our involvement in it. And I hope that if, if we... Come to Acts with an open mind and a humble heart. Which, by the way, um, we shouldn't be surprised when we're challenged from God's word, right? I mean, if, God, if we're never challenged from God's word, that means we probably aren't worshiping God. Because if God never challenges us, maybe, you know, does that make sense, right? I mean, we, could, we would assume that there are going to be times where we're living our lives and carrying on and, 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 and God's going to come in and say, no, it's got to be this way. It's going to challenge us. It's going to be hard and painful. Our toes are going to get stepped on. My toes have already been stepped on in preparing to preach this. How so? Well, summarizing it this way. We live in a society where individualism reigns and where the church also, when I say church, I'm just saying church in general, just to say idea of church we have in our heads, seems to have adopted a style of community that guards the privacy of the individual, Right? I mean, we kind of live in an age that thinks that religion and our worship is very private, very personal. And there is a very personal part of our worship. Some sense it's private. We do have private worship. But the early church in Acts presents a radical community where the members of the church held all things in common. There was this openness and embracement of each other as a family of God. Not a privatization and a, and a, and a, and a personalization of that holding people out, but in welcoming in. We live in a society, right, where selfishness is sometimes admired. And each one is kind of left to fend for him or herself. Like, you just need to, God helps those who help themselves, right? We looked at that lie of Satan in our elective session ago. But in Acts, we're going to see, we're going to see Luke record how Christians are a group of people who were so committed to Jesus Christ and the cause of the gospel that they were willing to sacrifice their desires for the good of others. Something our American society would laugh at. We live in a pluralistic society. Pluralism, right? Believing lots of things. We live in a postmodern society, right? Secularism is kind of being, being um, uh, even questioned, which means it's like, what is truth? But Acts is going to present a church that doesn't live on a subjective personal idea of truth, but it's going to present a church that's based, it's, that bases its life on the certain objective facts about God and Christ. Facts about Jesus that were not personally true for you, right? That's your truth. No. These are the truths that they are proclaiming to the world, saying this is the truth. 
Jesus is truth. And what happens is that they take that truth to the entire world that they knew at the time. Acts is going to challenge us because in an age when many churches spend so much time and money and energy on self-preservation and improvement, Acts is going to show us a church that presents, that gives generously of their finances and of their most capable people for reaching the lost. They actually grow by giving away. And Acts is going to show us a church that isn't looking for successful techniques but it's going to show us a church that depends on the Holy Spirit and gives top priority to prayer and to living godly lives. Right? We live in, a, in an age that wants to innovate. I'm not saying there aren't helpful tips in, in ways that we can, right? I mean, imagine what, what the Apostle Paul might have been able to do to spread the gospel if he had the internet, right? There's ways to creatively do some things. But it's interesting how it's timeless the truths and acts are for the Christian church because it presents a church that depended primarily not on their strategies or techniques, but on the Holy Spirit and gave top priority to prayer, personally and corporately as a church family. And I mentioned this earlier, a theme that I just glanced over, but over and over again, we're going to read about how people in Acts, these faithful messengers of Jesus, suffered. I mean, they suffered. And in an age when many avenues are available to avoid suffering, right? I mean, we want to avoid it. I want to avoid suffering. I do. But Acts is going to challenge, challenge my heart because in Acts, it doesn't show Christians who are trying to, to the best of their ability to leave out suffering from their own understanding of the Christian life. Instead, Acts shows a church that took on suffering, that actually celebrated that they were counted worthy by God to suffer for the name of Christ. They considered suffering a basic ingredient of discipleship. It's remarkable. Remarkable. I'll ask the music team to come up and get ready to lead us in our final hymn. A church family, Acts is an exciting book showing us how God is given the mission to his church and how the early church worked in obedience to that mission, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, to see God act in power through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Church family, I just want to give us a brief time of silent reflection. I know I've gone long. It's okay. We don't have electives today in honor of Father's Day. We're not going to have an elective session uh, after this. Church family, I'd like just to give us a, a, a moment for silent reflection, to silently pray. Pray for yourself and for your church family to humbly receive God's goodness to us in Acts. To be open to be challenged by the truth that God has for us in Acts and to be excited, to be eager, to be hopeful, faith-filled for what God might be pleased to do with us with the proclamation of the message of Christ. After a few moments of silent reflection, I will close us in prayer before we then sing together.